check, check. One, two, check. Mic's on. From the world of education to you, my name is Dr. A. Our show is all about finding your voice by connecting our community through collaboration. Welcome back to another edition of Mike's On. This is actually our 50th 5-0 episode. So thank you to everyone who has been a part of this experience and just allowed me to have some fun with something that as a kid I always thought I wanted to do was be a DJ. So uh, thank you for hanging around and being a part of it. Uh, going along the same lines as what we did last week, we're actually going to do one more chapter out of the book Stamped by Jason Reynolds and Ibram X. Kendi. And then in hopes that as we get into February, we will be able to do a quick book talk and then start having our regular guests back on. So this is chapter 10, The Contradictor, scholar, assimilationist, slaveholder, man of leisure, author, secretary of state, vice president, But before Thomas Jefferson took on the role of president, his racist ideas took top position in the minds of many white people, especially as slaves, many of whom were still inspired by the Haitian Revolution, were continuing to attempt insurrection. Like Gabriel and Nancy Prosser, the Prossers were planning a slave rebellion, recruiting hundreds of slaves to revolt in Virginia. They had it all mapped out, and it was meant to be epic. Hundreds of captives were supposed to march on Richmond, where they would steal 4,000 unguarded muskets, arrest the governor, and hold the city until other slaves arrived from surrounding counties to negotiate the end of slavery and the establishment of equal rights. Allies were to be recruited among Virginia's poor whites and Native Americans. The lives of friendly Methodists, Quakers, and French people were to be spared, but racist blacks, they would be killed. The Prossers took into account the fact that anti-racists of any color were more necessary, more important to their liberation than black assimilationists. And this theory would be proved when the revolt and their covers were blown. The revolt was scheduled for Saturday, August 30th, 1800, but two cynical slaves, snitches, begging for their master's favor, betrayed what would have been the largest slave revolt in the history of North America, with as many as 50,000 rebels joining in from as far away as Norfolk, Virginia. It was all it took for Governor James Monroe to have a militia waiting. Gabriel Prosser was eventually caught and hanged. Game over. Well, not completely. More like game changer. The attempted and failed revolt made slave owners nervous, as it should have. So up from the soil of slavery sprouted new racist ideas to protect white lives sending slaves back to Africa and the Caribbean, Thomas Jefferson's idea of colonization, was one of them. Lots of people got behind the strategy of colonization, including, eventually, a delegate from Virginia, Charles Fenton Mercer, and an anti-slavery clergyman, Robert Finley. Finley would take the colonization idea and run with it. He started an organization called the American Colonization Society and wrote the manifesto for it, outlining how free blacks would need to be trained to take care of themselves so that they could go back to Africa and take care of their motherland, build it up, civilize it, But when all this was actually pitched to free black people, they weren't for it, not having it. Black people didn't want to go back to a place they'd never known. They'd built America as slaves and wanted to reap the benefits of their labor as free people. America was now their land. This debate, the back and forth of what to do with slaves and free blacks, was what Thomas Jefferson was stepping into when he became president in 1801. And his response to all the fuss was that he needed to put a policy in place that he thought might actually start the process of ending slavery, ultimately leading to colonization. Wait, but he had slaves. Wait, so did he want to end slavery but not free his own? Wait, was he pro-slavery 
and anti-slavery? Contradiction. Could have been his middle name, Thomas Contradiction Jefferson. And that held true in 1807 when, as president, he brought about a new slave trade act. The goal was to stop the import of people from Africa and the Caribbean into America and fine illegal slave traders. Yes. Instead, the act turned out to be paper thin and did nothing to stop domestic slavery or the international slave trade. No. Kids were still being snatched from their parents, and slave ships were selling slaves downriver from Virginia to New Orleans, which took as many days as the trip across the Atlantic. No. And Jefferson, the man who signed this transatlantic slave trade act, started breeding slaves. No. He and other like-minded slave owners began forcing their men and women slaves to conceive children so that they, the owners, could keep up with all the farming demands of the Deep South. Slaves were being treated like human factories, birthing farming machines, tractors with heartbeats, backhoes that bleed. Contradiction. But by the end of his presidential term, Jefferson had had enough of it all. For real this time, done deal. He was ready to step away from everything, from all the mess and madness of Washington, and return to his home in Virginia, where he could read, write, and think. His notes on the state of Virginia would have been a bestseller if bestsellers were a thing back then. And at this point in his life, he even wanted to be done with the fame it had brought him. He seemed to be grinding a different gear now. At least he was trying to. He'd apologize for slavery. Pause. He'd apologized for slavery. Unpause. He'd retired and returned to Monticello so he could run his plantation. Pause. So he could run his plantation? Unpause. He'd expressed remorse for slavery but still needed slave labor to pay his debts and pay for his luxuries. And on top of that... Though he'd grown tired of the anti-slavery fight, which was also pro-slavery for him, he still, still, still continued to champion sending black people back to Africa. And if not Africa, Louisiana. Jefferson had purchased the Louisiana Territory from the French early in his presidency. He'd wanted it to be the safe haven for freed slaves. It was supposed to be a bubble, pronounced cage for blacks, where they could be safe and where white people could be safe from their potential response to, I don't know, the whole slavery thing. Colonization within the country, which was like black people being banished to the basement of the house they'd built under the premise that it was better than sleeping in the street. But the Louisiana Territory got shaky when the question of Missouri came into play. You have to remember that your map isn't the map they were using. The 50 states didn't exist yet, so Louisiana, or as it was known then, the Louisiana Territory, took up the entire middle of the country. It stretched from north to south. It wasn't the boot as we know it now. Trombones and red beans? No. The northern part of that swath of Louisiana was cut into what became the Missouri Territory. Its location, the Missouri part, was almost right smack in the middle of the country, meaning there was a geographical conundrum to be dealt with. Would Missouri be considered a slave state or a free state? Well, the answer is, there was a bill passed to admit Missouri into the Union, the North, as a slave state. A man named James Talmadge Jr. added an amendment to that bill that would have made it illegal for enslaved Africans to enter the new state, and stated that all children born from slaves in the state would be freed at the age of 25. The Talmadge Amendment sparked an explosive debate that burned for two years. Southerners saw this as a trick to limit the political power of Southern agriculture and mess with their money and leverage in the House of Representatives, and therefore their power. Ultimately, the debate was cooled by another compromise, the Missouri Compromise of 1820. Congress agreed to go on and admit Missouri as a slave state, but they'd also admit Maine as a free state to make sure there was still an equal amount of slave states and free states, so that no region or way of governing felt disadvantaged 
managed balance, and also to prohibit the introduction of slavery in the northern section of Jefferson's vast Louisiana territory, his experimental land for colonization, an experiment that seemed unlikely. But Jefferson would never give up on that idea, even as he aged, and even though he didn't really support Finley's American Colonization Society, he still saw the mission as golden. He looked at it almost as if he'd be sending black people home from camp smarter and stronger and ready to build, like it was benevolent and maybe even forgiving. Thomas Contradiction Jefferson, who grew up with black friends, hoped it would all come out in the wash and that slavery would ultimately produce more good than evil. At least that's one side of the coin, the smooth side. The textured side of Jefferson's intention was that he basically believed that sending black people back to where they came from would make America what it was always meant to be in his eyes, a playground for rich, white Christians. Despite the fact that Africans were brought to this land, enslaved, drained of their abilities and knowledge of growing and tending crops, exploited for their physical might and creativity when it came to building structures and making meals, stripped of their reproductive agency, stripped of their religions and languages, stripped of their dignity, American soil sopping with black blood, their DNA now literally woven into the fibers of this land. I wonder if black people were thinking, where can we send you all? Back to Europe? Or maybe instead of sending them, they were thinking more about ending them. Wouldn't be long before that choice was made for Jefferson. By the spring of 1826, his health had deteriorated to the point that he couldn't leave home. By summer, he couldn't even leave his bed. So sick, he was unable to attend the 50th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence. Aside from the children he had had with one of his slaves, Sally Hemings, how can you truly love humans you own? Jefferson did not free any of the other enslaved people at Monticello. Despite his believing that slavery was morally wrong, cementing once and for all the winner in his struggle between the ethical and the economic, one historian estimated that Jefferson had owned more than 600 slaves over the course of his lifetime. In 1826, he held around 200 people as property, and he was about $100,000 in debt, about $2.5 million today, an amount so staggering that he knew that once he died, everything and everyone would be sold. On July 2nd, 1826, Jefferson seemed to be fighting to stay alive. The 83-year-old awoke before dawn on July 4th and called out for his house servants. The enslaved black faces gathered around his bed. They were probably his final sight, and he gave them his final words. He had been a segregationist at times and assimilationist at other times, usually both in the same act, but he never quite made it to being anti-racist. He knew slavery was wrong, but not wrong enough to free his own slaves. He knew as a child that black people were people, but never fully treated them as such, saw them as friends, but never saw them. He knew the freedom to live was fair, but not the freedom to live in America. The America built on their backs. He knew that all men are created equal. He wrote it, but couldn't rewrite his own racist ideas. And the irony in that is that now his life has come full circle. In his earliest childhood memory and in his final lucid moment, Thomas Jefferson lay there dying, death being the ultimate equalizer in the comfort of slavery, surrounded by a comfort those slaves never felt. Thank you for joining us this week. Mike's off. Join us in the weeks to come as we learn and grow together.